Hello, I'm Katie Brain and you're listening to Goodness Gracious Grief. If you've been listening to previous episodes, you will know that I've had conversations about coping with grief, the stages of grief, as well as personal journeys of those living with grief. More recently, I've looked at will writing and the afterlife, but today I wanted to discuss organ donation. And if you have any thoughts of your own on organ donation, do get in touch and share your opinions. When I was younger, and I heard of organ donation, my thoughts were, absolutely not. They're my organs, and I will keep them, thanks. And I remained in this frame of mind for quite a few years, and I only began to question this when I heard an interview with a family whose young son had died tragically, and they had decided to donate his organs in the hope to save someone else's life. And I remember this conversation really well. I was in my car, I was driving home, listening to the local radio, and the interview just really caught me off guard. And I found myself sobbing. And since then, my views have changed dramatically. Now, the law around organ donation in England has changed to an opt-out system, with the aim to allow more people to save more lives. Of course, you still have a choice, but under the new legislation, everyone in England is deemed to be given consent for their organs to be donated when they die, unless they specifically have opted out of this system or are in an excluded group. Just a bit behind this new law, it was named Max and Kira's Law in the honour of a heart transplant survivor, Max Johnson. Now, Max was a 10-year-old who waited nine months for a new heart, and he finally got one in August 2017. Before then, he had to be kept alive by medical machinery. And it was Kira Ball, a young girl who sadly passed away after a road traffic accident, which meant Max received the heart he needed. Now, Max's mother, Emma, she campaigned for this opt-out system so it could help other children. Well, this week, it's actually Organ Donation Week, and I thought it was important to highlight this conversation even more. And so, I want to introduce a good friend of mine. She's a GP, mum of three, and just really an all-round superwoman. Her name is Nigat Arif, and Nigat has her own story of organ donation. So I had a conversation with Nigat, and it started just like this. Can you just tell me about your journey with organ donation? Because you had a new baby, you already had one child. What happened next? So, yeah, as you say, I had a child already, and in 2015, we decided to have another one. It was such a planned baby. We, we were ready. I was uh, the right time in my career as well. And he was born, the pregnancy was actually the breeze. It was a lovely pregnancy compared to my first one. And a happy, healthy baby took him home and started breastfeeding, because obviously that's what I've done with my first one. And it was only when he was about three weeks old that I noticed that he was gradually becoming more and more yellow. And then I noticed slowly that he was, uh, his 
poo was becoming paler and his urine was becoming darker. And even though when you're exhausted as a, a, a mum with two kids at home and you're still recovering from your own postnatal uh, trauma, which um, most women will relate to if they've had children, is that I knew something wasn't right. And for me, I just thought I need to make sure that this isn't something serious. So I took him to the doctor and they um, said, right, we'll just do a blood test and see what happens. And usually it's going to be breast milk jaundice because jaundice is so common. That's the first thing. I really need people to know that just because your child is yellow does not mean that they need a transplant. It, it can be a, a thousand and one different things. And it is common and it goes away completely. Uh, but with Kasim, it just wasn't the case. They had the blood test and I got a phone call that evening to say, be really careful with your child because his blood has is so thin, his INR, which is a, a marker that we use for thinning of the blood, is seven and should be about one or two. And I just thought, oh my goodness. Um, and that's when the ball just started kicking off and we got admitted into King's College Hospital. Uh, he was had so many different tests because I couldn't work out what was going on with him. So I stopped breastfeeding. And that was actually, the physical side of it was more than the emotional side because I, I became engorged and it was just so painful to uh, to look after him as well as then myself because I'm still recovering postnatally. Uh, when they couldn't get to the bottom of it through tests, they did a biopsy. He was about three and a half weeks old and the biopsy then took another week or so to come back. And I just remember really vividly sitting in the consultant's room and he just said to me, We've done so many different tests, but he's got the most rarest metabolic condition. It's called bile salt export protein pump deficiency. It's so rare, but it just means that he can't get rid of the bile out of his liver. And that means that the bile, which is essentially this uh, horrible chemical, is knocking off all his liver cells and his liver cells are becoming damaged. So he's got this 50% chance of getting liver cancer, but we'll try and do as much as we possibly can in order to allow him to cope with what he's already got because he's so small um, we need him to get to a, a bigger weight we need him to thrive a bit more um, and also it might be that he's in that 50 percent chance where he doesn't get any complications but at the at some stage if he gets chronic liver disease or cirrhosis of the liver which is basically damage to the liver then uh, we're going to have to do a transplant and that was it that 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 sort of 10 minute consultation with the consultant um just just changed everything i wasn't this doctor with a, just a child who's a bit yellow i was now a mum with a four-year-old at home a doctor who was planning to go back to work and probably not able to work and we found ourselves waiting on the transplant list so going back to that that moment when you hear the words organ transplant what were your initial thoughts so i've got some recollection of consenting patients. Um, as a doctor, when I was a junior house officer, I watched senior consultants and transplant teams talk to family members. So I remember this um, young man who died in a car accident and sitting in A&E, his parents were there and um, the transplant team approached him because he, he was actually fine. I mean, there was no internal damage done to him and started consenting because on his driving license, he had consented that he wanted to be a donor. So I was I had that, I had that visceral connection with that. So I knew the process. It wasn't an alien aspect for me at all. But then to be waiting on the list, so that opposite side, that was totally new. 
how do you wait on a list? And I'm not a patient person anyway. <laughs> like, Kaylee, I'm not patient at all. So to be waiting, you just think, well, how long is a piece of string? Am I going to get a call tomorrow? And they said that if you get a phone call, within an hour, we have to get you into the hospital, prep you, because the tissue that they harvest if I can sound a bit clinical there, but the tissue that they harvest, it has to be um, transplanted quickly because the tissue starts dying quite quickly. So they need to make sure that the recipient and the donor are in a similar place at a similar time. So it, it's literally a fight against the clock. So I had my bags prepped, I had everything prepped every day and my phone constantly on me day and night waiting. But that wait turned into from six weeks until you got to 10 months old. So that turned into what? 10 months waiting for that phone call. But we never got it. Um, and Kasim just deteriorated. Every review that we had every three to four weeks at the hospital uh, driving up was just full of tears because I would just cry all the way home in the car because it was yet, his liver function's awful, his liver function's really bad, his spleen is getting bigger. He was finding it difficult to breathe because the liver gets rid of your fluid, but he was starting to swell and that fluid was going into his lungs. So he wasn't able to breathe as effectively. That meant he couldn't eat properly. And so there was this constant fight of how do I keep my son well enough so he can stay on the transplant list, um, but yet, uh, you know, let him get so unwell that he's on the urgent list. Does that make sense? So it was always this sort of battle that I had as a, as a, as a mum to kind of keep him healthy but then as a medic knowing that at some point they might say to me do you know what Nigat? he's too sick for you to have the transplant so we're just gonna switch off everything and just take him home so that you can have him at home with you um to let nature take its course and i was i was so not ready for those that conversation that i did everything in my power to run away from that conversation so i threw myself into work I made sure that I gave all his medication at the regime that I needed to be at. I watched him like a hawk. I rarely slept because he'd slept with me in my bed. Um, it just consumes you. It just literally consumes you. But now on looking back, I just turned into this machine. I just needed to make sure that he was well enough because I was so scared of the palliative conversation. And all that time while you're, while you're just waiting, did you consider as a family if there was any kind of family members that would match and also is it more difficult to find a donation for a black minority or ethnic group was that another problem as well yeah um i guess that's where my sort of medical hack plays a role because i knew it's harder to get from black asian ethnic minorities mainly because the less are likely to donate there's far uh, illiteracy around organ donation in these communities, in my community, so uh, you know I'm part of that. And also that in order to get a match you need a similar gene pool, you also need a similar immunity, HLA testing as well, so the idea is, is to reduce rejection as much as possible. So I knew that when they told me that, that initial consultation when he was about so roughly six weeks old, that look he'll need a transplant. So again I went into this mode of I'm going to take the ball by the horn. And I started pestering the donation team, you know, the transplant team going, test me, test me as a living donor, because um, I'm his mum, I've carried him for nine months. And the, the liver is brilliant because you can cut it in half and then the liver does regenerate and grow. So I knew that. 
But then being a living donor has loads of complications. So they said, I think they quoted a one in 200 chance of death on the table. Um, living donors will be affected themselves. So the recovery for me can be huge. And they said, well, if you're going to take all this time out from your career, remember you've got a dependent as well. What if something awful happens to you? So I remember having a conversation with Khalid, my husband, about, well, do not resuscitate. I'm 33 years old and I'm saying to him, look, if something happens to me, then I don't want to be resuscitated. So he's looking at me thinking, I can't believe I'm having this conversation with a 33-year-old. That's not something that, that's normal. But it became our norm. You've mentioned being a doctor already, but did kind of being a doctor in this situation make the process easier or harder for you, do you think? Oh, I get this asked quite a lot. I think the difficulty is, is that there's two parts to me. There's, I never knew the intricacies of liver transplants. I mean, nobody does. That's super, super, super specialised medicine. <laughs> um, I'm just a GP, as I keep telling people. But I, I, had an, I have enough background knowledge to know what's going on. So I, I, I kept, like I said, I kept an eye on Kasim so I could check his vitals at home and do doctory bits at home um, before I sort of panicked and things. But then on the other hand, I'm a mum as well. So you sort of use your antennae as a mum. So people would say to me, oh, it must be so easy because you're a doctor. Actually, it doesn't because sometimes I can envisage conversations with specialists before they even happen. And because I know what's to come, because I've done, I've done that, I've done those conversations myself, I've had those conversations with family relatives, um, that you want to run away from that. You physically want to run away from that. So you almost then start to compartmentalise. So you think, right, now I'm mum, but actually now I'm a doctor. And you shouldn't try and be your family's doctor. But I had no other choice because you all, I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about the, the fact that Kasim was going through all of this. I hid it so much um, because I just didn't want people feeling sorry for me or thinking that um, I needed help. And that's so isolating and actually in hindsight really lonely so anyone listening to this i would say to them it never helps to hide stuff because it just means that it hinders you more obviously the call did come and kasim is now a healthy happy full of life little boy i've met him he's gorgeous but i just want to talk about religion for a moment because that's another element of this for you you're a muslim woman your father's an imam so how was your decision for organ transplant kind of affected by your religious beliefs and how the organ donation just perceived by your religion so there's this massive perception in islam that you cannot donate um, there's a school of thought that your organs don't belong to you or your body doesn't belong to you it's a gift from allah and therefore it has to be returned upon death intact as much as possible because you'll need it in the afterlife so there's that one theory however there is a theory in islam as well that you can donate as long as your heart has stopped beating. But in medicine, we have two deaths. We have a brainstem death, so that means your brainstem, your, your, the neck, the back of the neck, that gets severed and you're clinically dead and that's fine. But your heart can keep on beating with machines. Um, and then you get a heart death, which is your heart stops beating. So that's why in medicine, this is where you get the um, conflict with Islam because Islam only recognizes one death. When your heart stops beating, that's it, that's death. However, that doesn't fit well with um, organ donation because in order to keep the, blood, the organs perfused with rich oxygen and rich blood to keep them happy and healthy, 
for transplant, you have to get the heart beating and get the heart pumping that blood around and that perfusion and that tissue to be kept well. But then, so there was this conflict between Islam saying, hang on, as a Muslim, your heart has to stop beating, but then medicine saying, but we can't transplant unless the heart is... So historically, there's always been this clash. However, medicine has moved on leaps and bounds. Now we know that we can retrieve tissue samples, stem cells, um, whole um, organs without the heart even beating. And we can actually retrieve them and then perfuse them through machines. So it's not physically being done by the body, which means now it is permissible in Islam. So a fatwa was released in 2019 by the British Muslim Council, who looked at all the literature and said, where do we draw the line? Because giving life is an act of humanity. And in Islam, that is humanity to its essence. You've got to be able to reciprocate what you're given. So when we were on the transplant list, I had this huge debate with my father because I had to challenge him. I had to challenge my own faith, which is really difficult to do. But I had to because I thought to myself, if I can accept an organ for my child, and I'm desperate for an organ, and I know how hard that weight is. How can I, as a Muslim woman who's practicing, who wears a hijab, who is overtly very vocal about her faith um, across all platforms, how can I then um, justify the fact that I can't reciprocate that act back? That does not sit well with me as a Muslim, and we have to challenge that. And by challenging that, you allow more research and more scholars to be looking at the literature, because also, as a Muslim, the greatest act of humanity is kindness and giving back without without sort of monetary value to that. So that is where I have found my peace with becoming an organ donor. Obviously, for someone to receive an organ, someone has to lose theirs. And the organ that you received, kind of who did that come from? And do you still feel a connection to them at all? Yeah, their baby is with me every day. Like I, I genuinely, when I say that, my husband and my family just look at me and they say, really? And I say, yeah, he, I do feel this presence that's in my life. Like I don't feel I've got three children. I feel like I've got four children that I'm looking after because that liver, I look at my son, Kasim's got this beautiful scar across his stomach. And I look at that scar and I just look at his liver and I think to myself, that's, a piece inside him that's genetically not mine or my husband's. Someone, some amazing altruistic family, these amazing heroes who I have just the utmost respect for. And I would never be able to reach that pinnacle of um, altruism. That you know, I'll never be able to reciprocate that to that level because their child went out on a bike, fell off his bike, hit the back of his neck and had a brainstem injury. Now, it was a young child. That's something that we do every day. It was just a freak accident. And then they were approached at the hospital because their child was universal. So his blood group was O. That means he could have gone to anyone. And they said, we're waiting for this child to have a liver transplant. He's at King's College Hospital. Because if we don't get it, then his mum's going to donate. Because I was all ready for the surgery. Because I was just at tenterhooks just to do it. And the family consented. But they didn't even just consent my son. They consented for seven other lives. So that, what, that one child gave memories and life and opportunities, just this amazing gift to eight people in total. And you just think to yourself, oh my God, that's a legacy that will live on. So for me, my feeling is, is that um, if I die and my organs are healthy, by all means, I don't need them. 
take them because that gives somebody else memories because I'm making memories every day with Kasim. Like he started year one. I've I've dealt with a pandemic <laughs> with my son. Um, not that I've dealt with it personally, but <laughs> I've, I've worked through a pandemic. And so I feel I feel humbled by this incredible family. And I relate really closely to the mother because I think I am a mother. And I just think the courage that she must have had knowing, look, I can't take my baby home. Because regardless of the age of your child, you, if you can't take something home, but yet you can allow somebody else who you don't know, she didn't have to care about me that day, but she did. And she allowed me to take my baby home so that I can make all these memories. And then also his, her child is with me. So that legacy that just lives on. And I think that also she's just ignited this sort of um, passion inside me to say, look, as a community, as a Muslim, British, Pakistanis, black South Asian communities, we need to be looking at this far more because we need to be able to support the NHS for future. Because even if it's not you now that needs a transplant, it might be you down the line. Because more organ donation will happen, more organ transplants will happen. Because chronic, we're living longer, chronic diseases are happening more. So high blood pressure, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, all of those will knock off your organs at some point. So you will be needing a transplant and the technologies is just getting better and better and better and so surely we should be invested in that and for the future i just wanted to say to all muslims who are listening to this podcast um, please do your own research it's really important that you look at validated accredited websites when it comes to decisions around organ donation there's the british islamic um, medical association there's also the british council as well and also the NHS organ donation uh, website has these fantastic resources on one, how to get the conversation started amongst your family members so that you know how to even have that conversation. Secondly, you can then look at the literature for all different faiths, not just Islam, about what it says around organ donation. And thirdly, make a choice that fits you. But then most importantly, share that, that choice with your family because your family members might not know that that is what, how you feel. I'm not saying that everybody has to donate or everybody has to register, but actually, if you are willing to receive an organ, um, then you have to be willing to donate. And that is the most important thing. That's the way you have to see it, because at the end of the day, these are acts of humanity and make peace with that at some point, be able to communicate that with your family. That was Nagat Arif and her personal story with organ donation. Are you happy about the new law around organ donation? And if people opt out, what do you think? You can find Nagat on Twitter at Dr Nagat Arif and she also is regularly popping up on your TV screens too as a resident GP so you might notice her there. To find out more about organ donation, you can visit www.organdonation.nhs.uk. And remember, you can catch up on all episodes of Goodness Gracious Grief, where I've been having conversations around death and dying for quite a few weeks now. Or if you do have any suggestions of topics you would like covered, then do just let me know. Next week, I'll be talking about coffin keepsakes things that we might be buried with it's a good one until then i'm katie brain and you've been listening to goodness gracious grief